It's time for the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Yeah, not our usual theme music because not our usual show. We've been picked as the warm-up act for today's special coverage of the 2010 Monterey Jazz Festival on KUSP. We'll be going over to KUSP's mobile broadcasting team at the festival in just a half hour. They'll be bringing you performances from the likes of the Next Generation Jazz Orchestra with Diane Reeves, Rudresh Mahantapa in the Indo-Pak Coalition. By the way, we heard Rudresh on this show just a week ago. And Mark Levine and the Latin Tinge. That's this afternoon with more acts scheduled for tonight. And as a lead-up to that coverage, I'm going to air an interview with one of the musicians just mentioned, the pianist Mark Levine. Mark Levine, many of you know, is based in the Bay Area and has been a key figure in Latin jazz here on the West Coast and points beyond for decades. He's played with many of the greats of Latin jazz and jazz. That's him with the late Cal Jader there in the background. And we're going to hear a conversation I had with uh, Mark just a couple days ago. We listened to some of his music. He described some of the essential principles of Latin jazz, and he told me about his long career in the genre. That career began on rather short notice in the early 1970s. I was living back in Boston, and there was one good Latin band in Boston, and the piano player quit, and I was recruited to take his place. So that's when it all started. And your background at that point in music had been what? Just jazz. You had no knowledge of Latin music? Not very little. Whatsoever. And you're asked to, to take your place, you know? Well, I had a month. Playing. You had a month. <laughs> the guy gave a month's uh, notice. So uh, they just worked with me every day, and I found I had a natural feel for it, so it wasn't that difficult. It wasn't that difficult, really? No. The first band I played with was more salsa than Latin jazz, mm. and salsa at that time was two chords, three chords. So the harmonic aspect of it was very, very simple. Mm-hmm. The only thing to really learn was the rhythmic aspect, and that I had no problem with. Mm-hmm. No. But there must have been something more to the whole world of Latin music that uh, was very compelling, because you stuck it out, and here we are, 30 years later, you're still playing it, or 40 years later. Well, I heard the possibilities that, that Latin jazz could come of this, and I was also exposed to, at that particular point, some Latin jazz recordings, like Mongo Santa Maria and Willie Bobo. Mm. So uh, the putting the two together, putting Latin music together and jazz together was something I immediately wanted to do, mm. and I didn't find it that difficult to do so. So you became a Latin jazz player as well as a jazz player. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah. What about the, the world of Latin jazz? It was mostly Latin American musicians. There weren't that many non-Latin Americans playing it. Were there at that time? Uh, actually, not very many. Most Latin jazz bands of that time, uh, which was uh, early to mid-'70s, Consisted of, for instance, Mongo Santa Maria or Willie Bobo, consisted of uh, six or seven or eight guys. Uh, almost no women were playing it at that time. Um, there may be four or five were Latin musicians who knew a little bit about jazz, and the other three or four were jazz musicians who had a decent feeling for Latin music. But there was almost nobody that um, that was really that comfortable in both idioms. Uh, around that time, I moved to New York just about a year after I joined that first band and met some people that that were comfortable in both idioms in, in New York. A uh, great trombone player named Barry Rogers, uh, my friend Bobby Porcelli, and a few people like that. So I began to hear some what some other people were doing. Also, Chick Corea uh, was deep into uh, Latin jazz at the time. 
So that inspired me, and I went on from there. So let's listen to a piece that's, that's relatively recent from your album um, Isla. This is called Con Alma, which I guess means with soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to hear you and your group, The Latin Tinge. Now, Mark, if, if we were to compare what we just heard, a relatively recent example of your, your Latin jazz playing, and what you were doing way back at the beginning, you know, in the 70s, what sort of differences would we hear? What sort of um, evidence of all those years of uh, playing and studying would we hear? A greater understanding of clave, the basic rhythm, in Afro-Cuban music. Uh, not that I consider myself an expert of that at all. But um, back when I was playing, the first few bands I played with, Latin jazz groups, I knew nothing at all about Claudio. I think I had a natural feeling for it. But when I played with Cal, uh, there were no particular mentors in the band to hit me to what was on Claudio or off Claudio. Uh, by the time uh, I formed the Latin Tinge, I knew considerably more about it. So when I would take a song like Con Elma, which is by Dizzy Gillespie, by the way, and try to adapt it, I was much more aware of how and why the music has to fit clave rhythms. Uh, and again, I'm not an expert on it. I, I, uh, I've only been to Cuba once, and Michael Spiro, uh, my percussionist, has probably been to Cuba 20 times. Uh, he knows much more about it than I do. In fact, we in the band, he's the clave cop. Uh, <laughs> if something isn't right, he'll put up his hand and say, stop. Uh, no, it's off clave, so... Well, maybe you can explain to us what clave is. I mean, clave, first of all, are those pieces of wood that sometimes get banged together to create a little rhythmic pattern in Latin music, but it's more than that, obviously. It's a two-bar rhythm, two-bar rhythmic pattern. One bar is mostly on the beat, and one bar is largely off the beat. Uh, it's a really an oversimplification. But it's a yin-yang, male-female principle uh, that's not particularly common in American jazz, it's common in R&B uh, because R&B was originally uh, influenced by Latin music back around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, so you hear it a lot in R&B. You don't really hear very much of it in jazz. Most jazz musicians until recently had no knowledge or understanding of clave. 
So what's it sound like? Uh, very loosely this. But there's many variations of that. Uh, uh, the first bar had three hits, the second bar had two hits, but you can also reverse it, make the first bar have two, make the second bar have three. There's different types of clave, son clave, rumba clave. There's a clave that fits 6-8 rhythm, which is very common in Latin music and almost totally missing in American music. American music is uh, strange in that it has is really no 6-8 tradition, where 6-8 mm. is probably the predominant rhythm in the world, mm. and it's almost totally missing in this country, except in folk music, Irish folk music, uh, Scotch folk music, Mexican folk music that's made it into American uh, mainstream. Mm. But there's no indigenous 6-8 in, in pure American music, which is very odd. So so the most familiar clave beat, the one that you just um, snapped your fingers to, bop, 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 bop. Bop, bop. We'll hear that in a lot of Latin music. You said you can hear it in R&B, and, and as soon as you started snapping your fingers, I started hearing, say, the Bo Diddley rhythm. Bop, oh, yeah. Bop, 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 mm-hmm. bop, bop. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. And that is a deep, essential concept in uh, Latin music. You said it sounds pretty simple to me. Now, you said it isn't because you're still learning it. You're still getting it all mm-hmm. these years later. What's, what's complicated about it? Uh, what's, well, I wouldn't call it complicated, but what you have to learn how to do is fit melodies to clave. So if I'm, if I'm playing a Dizzy Gillespie melody, like, uh, the song you just played, or on Isla, also there's a song by Cedar Walton. Those songs were not written with clave in mind because, uh, uh, Cedar Walton is not a Latin musician. So, Mm -hmm. but some of his music, uh, fits clave fairly well. But you still have to tweak it every now and then. You have to move a particular note, a half a beat ahead or a beat behind or something, just so it fits nicely. And almost the only American jazz composer whose music really fits almost entirely in clave is Thelonious Monk, oddly enough. Uh-huh. Uh, and nobody's ever given me a reason why. It's it's quite possible that where he grew up in New York was right next to Spanish Harlem or so he was exposed to it at an early age. or That's just a guess, though. I don't really know. Uh-huh. But there's been, there's been two very important records, Latin jazz records, uh, based around his music. Jerry Gonzalez, Rumba Para Monk, and Danilo Perez's album, Panamonk. Danilo is from Panama, so that's in there, too. But Monk has that a bit of clave feel from time to time. So they didn't have to do as much... I don't tweaking. Know, tweaking, tweaking to yeah. make Monk fit the Latin vibe. Although True. they had to deal with his melodic oddities, but uh, <laughs> well, but the harmonic play. Most important thing is the rhythm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listening to um, a lot of Latin jazz and and the role of your instrument, piano, in it, it, it strikes me that it is partly a melodic instrument, partly a rhythm instrument. Technically, it is a rhythm instrument. Yeah. It's considered a percussion instrument. Yeah, you are banging on those keys, and they're hitting hammers that are banging on strings. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Latin jazz, that percussive element is more prominent, I think, in, in many ways than, than in some other music for piano. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You're adding a rhythmic layer to the music, just like the congas, just like the bass, just like timbales, if there are timbales, and mm-hmm. other other rhythm section instruments. That's true. Uh, it's Latin music and Latin jazz are layered music. Everybody has a slightly different rhythm. And they all have to fit together. And if one person is off, then the whole thing collapses. Mm, mm. So I I wanted to just explore some of the the classic sort of 
patterns that that we hear pianos play in Latin jazz. And and um, I've got one example here from your uh, performance of Corte Esse Bonche. This is again from your album Isla with the Latin tinge. Let's just listen to a little segment of the piano here and then you can tell us what you're doing. playing is what's called a montuno, which is the basic accompanying pattern that pianists play in salsa and in most Latin jazz also. It's based on clave, it's a two-bar pattern. Uh, harmonically, it can be greater than two bars, four bars, eight bars, but rhythmically, it's a two-bar pattern. Did it feel constraining to become part of a combo where you were going to start playing these prescribed patterns a lot, these prescribed rhythms, adding a layer that fits some very traditional restrictions like the clave beat, as opposed to, say, another idea of jazz piano, which uh, is this virtuoso solo instrument, you know, with greats like Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum and Bud Powell, and, you know, the list is endless. You know, it just seemed to me that maybe stepping from the jazz world where you could do whatever you want on piano to the Latin world where you become kind of a role player, become part of this tight unit, might seem a little confining. Um, or am I wrong about that? <laughs> no, I think you're correct, actually. And I think a lot of jazz pianists, if they're exposed to Latin music and asked to play it, they find it confining uh, because they don't really catch the groove. Uh, they don't either don't have a natural feeling for clave or don't allow themselves to develop it. Uh, so for many pianists, it is confining. Mm. Um, but if you really understand the, the, the groove element and the challenges therein, yeah, I would I would substitute the word like to understand. Understand, <laughs> of course, is important, but you got to love the music too. Mm -hmm. So, if you like it, if you love it, and you say I want to do this, then uh, you're ahead of the game. Well, what what is it you love about it? Mm, just the rhythmic feeling. I think some people feel music in two bar phrases. Uh, Africans, North Africans, West Africans feel music in two bar phrases, and most of this music is derived from. Latin music, is most of it is derived rhythmically from West Africa and North Africa. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's genetic. I have no idea. <laughs> My parents were from Russia. <laughs> so I have no idea how they picked, picked up on it. But on the other hand, all of us are originally from Africa. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe there's a gene that's... Uh, there's a clave gene that's transfer, <laughs> transferred down through the generations. So when you say two-bar phrases, you mean a tight cycling pattern. It's, yes. It's, it's revolving every two bars. That's true. There's also one other track on that record, Seis Pachuito, that uh, is very extremely modern because it takes uh, great liberties with a clave. It has things like seven-bar phrases. and So you constantly have to adjust your clave feeling. Uh, so at some point you might want to place a place some of that well here, here's a good point to do it right now okay
Well, right there, there were two examples. There was a tempo change, and there was also a seven-bar phrase in the middle there, which in strict Cuban music you're not allowed to have. So, you know, all music evolves. Um, Cuban musicians of, say, the 1930s generation would would probably shake their heads at this and say it's all wrong. <laughs> But on the other hand, the Cuban musicians of, of 1898 would probably listen, listen to records from 1938 and say it's all wrong. Um, but some people get it wrong. They take too many liberties and the clave feeling is lost. And, uh, you know, I think that probably the biggest music in Cuba right now is rap. So who knows? <laughs> you can't really predict uh, which direction music is going to go in. You have um, worked with, you know, many of the greats of Latin jazz. Um, I couldn't possibly recite the whole list here, but it includes Mongo Santa Maria, Willie Bobo, uh, Moacir Santos, who we're going to talk about uh, in a while. He's Brazilian, but I'd still call him part of the greater Latin jazz world. Francisco Aguabella, Pete Escovedo, Cal Jader, and many more. What did it take to be accepted in the ranks of people of that stature? Um, did they just want to hear your chops? If you're good enough, you're in? I don't know. It's very mysterious. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. I think that's what uh, happened with Cal. Um, his piano player at the time quit. Um, somebody recommended me. Uh -huh. uh, if it had happened six months before or six months after, I may never have uh, ended up in his band. But you're very respected. I mean, maybe you, you're too humble to say so, but um, I'll say it for you. You know, you obviously are someone who is very respected in Latin jazz circles. And yeah, thank you. I'm just wondering if, uh, if, if that happened quicker, or was that a long apprenticeship to get on the inside like that? I still feel like I'm an apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's why you are accepted, that <laughs> sense of endless apprenticeship. Any skill is uh, is ongoing, so it's a lifetime study. Uh, so I never, nobody ever really gets there. You die before you get there. Mm. So, uh, with the possible exception of our Tatum, who <laughs> <laughs> uh, seems to have come from another planet. He seems to have come from <laughs> another planet. The odd thing is, our Tatum didn't improvise. Strangely enough, his solos of pieces that he recorded in the 1930s are identical, almost note for note, to the same songs that he recorded in the 1950s. Yet he's still regarded by many people as the greatest jazz pianist of all time. I remember hearing a, an interview with McCoy Tyner, uh, and the interviewer asked him who was the greatest jazz musician of all time. And he said, Art Tatum. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer was surprised because he thought he was going to say John Coltrane, having, mm -hmm. yeah. McCoy having worked with him for years. But the interviewer instead says, no, I didn't mean the greatest jazz pianist, the greatest jazz musician. And McCoy again said, or Tatum, which is odd because Tatum didn't really improvise. So it's a, you know, art is, it's very difficult to, to describe art in scientific terms. It's too diffuse, too subjective. So here's somebody that's regarded by many people as the greatest jazz musician of all time, and he didn't really improvise. Yeah, how do you figure that one? There's no answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, in this 
lifelong apprenticeship that you're you're involved in. Um, what what are the things that you are constantly studying or or contemplating in this music? Well, in the last few years, a growing interest in world music, particularly African music, uh, but not exclusively. And uh, to narrow it down even further, North African music. Uh, to narrow it down even further, the Ganawa music of Morocco. Uh, and also uh, some of the great world musicians of today. Nguyen Lee, Karim Ziad. Uh, I don't know if these names mean anything to you. Omu Sangari. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are big stars in Europe. Oh, absolutely. And are completely unknown here. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been a focus of my study in recent years. Yeah, Umu Sangari and some of the others from that part of Mali. Uh, fantastic music. Love it. I more or less consider Mali the, the most musical country in the world. Mm. Uh, I'd love to go there someday. <laughs> um, you know, a, a moment ago I mentioned uh, Moacir Santos as someone you, you'd performed with. Um, very well known, at least in Brazil, I think. Yes? Mm-hmm. Jazz composer. Yes. Uh, not so well known here. Not so well known here, true. But I think that's changing. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his music, and then we'll play some examples? He was way ahead of his time. He was composing music that was uh, harmonically, rhythmically, far in advance of what anybody else was doing in Brazil back in, as far back as the 1950s. And he was had a profound influence on that the whole next generation of uh, much more famous Brazilian musicians, many of whom studied with him. And he had some early success, but right around the time of Brazil 66, when a lot of Brazilian musicians were coming to this country, uh, he was persuaded to do so. Uh, Horace Silver got him a recording contract with Blue Note. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Moser's records on Blue Note, uh, but Blue Note was expecting another Brazil 66. Mm-hmm. And when they heard his first album, uh, they said, uh-oh. And they put no uh, promotion behind it. So he made he had he had a three record contract. He made those three records, and now those records are almost impossible to find. By the way, Blue Note lost the masters. So those are real collectors' items. They're now. really collectors' yeah. items. Do you Some own them, them yourself? For, yeah, I have copies myself. Mm. I regularly troll eBay and sites like that, because every now and then one will show up for twenty five bucks, and it's really worth three hundred. So I have a growing collection of uh, Monsieur Santos LPs. I want to corner the market eventually. <laughs> so, so here's an irony, isn't it? I mean, Blue Note, famous for jazz music, ignores him because he doesn't have the sort of poppy feel of Brazil 66. He's Correct. doing something that's jazzier, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, you worked with him. He, he died in 2006, is that right? Um, around there. I think it might have been a year or two before that. I'm, uh, I'm about five years ago. Uh, uh, but you've done a, a tribute to him in, in your latest album. Yes. Uh, off and on. Yeah. Yeah, this is the music of Mosir Santos. Correct. Why don't you pick a tune from that album? We'll listen to it a little bit and talk some more. Happily Happy. All right, great. Let's listen to Happily Happy, again, from Off and On, your most recent album, a piece by uh, Mosir Santos. And one thing to remember about this is this is an Afro-Cuban-oriented band. We're playing Brazilian music with an Afro-Cuban slant to it. So on the way to Rio, we turned left and went to Havana.
So, so Mark, first of all, tell us who we're listening to aside from yourself in this band. Oh, uh, that's Mary Fettig on flute, Michael Spiro on percussion, Paul von Wageningen on drums, and John Watala on bass. Mm-hmm. And they are the Latin tinge, its current incarnation. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so to my ear, what we're hearing it does sound Afro-Cuban. I mean, I'm hearing Michael on uh, percussion playing what sounds like a rumba beat to me. It is. It's uh, it's uh, rumba clave. Um, the little clicks you hear at the beginning are Paul von Wageningen playing the clave rhythm. Uh, and it's one other interesting feature about it. In, that, in the melody itself, it goes into three-quarter time for a few bars and then comes out back into four-four time very, very smoothly which is something that's very characteristic of Moisture's music uh, going way back to the 1950s and 60s, which nobody else was doing at the time. Mm. But you, you guys are giving sort of the uh, Afro-Cuban treatment to this Brazilian composer's work. Yes. What remains Brazilian in that? The melody. The melody. Uh-huh. And in, in many of the pieces, the harmony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the harmony is not particularly important in this particular piece. But the, the melody is Brazilian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rhythm is Afro-Cuban. Mm. And there was also a little jazz section in there, eight bars long, mm-hmm. where we play swing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a real hybrid of three different types of music. Um, I hate to use the word fusion, but it's a, it's a fusion of three different genres. Now, it's, uh, it's going to be Moasir's uh, music that you're playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival. Yes. You'll be joined by this same band. The same band, and Claudia Villela. The uh, Brazilian-born vocalist. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you'll be playing in the festival. Uh, we'll be playing pretty much the same songs that are on the album. With vocals, though. With vocals. Uh, with vocals on, I think, seven of the songs. Unfortunately, we don't have recordings of Claudia singing with you, so we won't be able to give our listeners a taste of the... Uh, the vocal element. That's true. Only imagine. Maybe you can describe what Claudia adds to the whole sound then. Well, Mosir's music was largely vocal music. Uh, his original Blue Note records, uh, probably three-fourths of the songs were, were vocals. Mm. Uh, some with Brazilian lyrics, Portuguese lyrics. Some with not-so-great English lyrics. Mosir really didn't know enough English at the time when he came to this country to find a good lyricist. So the lyrics, the lyrics on some of those early albums were uneven, not as good as the music itself. So we picked out the best of them, mm-hmm. and Claudia wanted to sing. She, Claudia picked out the ones that she liked best, and so she'll, I think, be singing seven of the tunes that we'll be doing. Mm. Is she a fan of Mosier's music also? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very difficult to find a Brazilian musician who's not a fan mm. of Mosier's music. What, what's special about his music in your, in your view? The combination of harmony, melody, and rhythm, which was way ahead of its time. His genius as a songwriter. I maintain he's by far the best Brazilian songwriter of the 20th century, with all due respect to Jobim, (laughs) Gilberto, and everybody else. Uh, He just never had the exposure. Once he came to this country and made those records, he was largely forgotten. Uh, Toward the end of his life, he was kind of rediscovered. Uh, They had big tributes to him in Brazil. Made a couple of DVDs, a great record called Oro Negro, in which even Wynton Marsalis took part. Um, but there was a, a good 30, 40 year period of there where he just lived in obscurity in Pasadena. That's so often the case, isn't it, though, that some of the greats aren't acknowledged in their own time? Yes, and Mosier wasn't very much, he was a very, very spiritual person. He wasn't really into the business end of it, so he didn't really know how to promote himself. 
Back when I worked with him, he had very, very bad management, except for a couple of gigs around L.A. The two, the two longest gigs I worked with him were Lake Tahoe and Reno. And we were, in one of those gigs, we were fired after one night. Fired? Why? Uh, they wanted some kind of lounge music. <sighs> and, uh, you know, they heard all this, what they called, what the manager of the club called jungle music. Oh, no. So, uh, <laughs> it just was reality. It was, uh, he was ahead of his time. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you're saying they use the term jungle music for this very, I would call it very suave, I would call it a sophisticated sound, uh, Brazilian jazz, Latin jazz. I mean, he called that jungle music? Well, nobody ever accused the <laughs> club owners. Of, have, there's, there's a lot of great jokes about club owners and ears. <laughs> Can I tell a joke? Yeah, yeah, let's hear one. <laughs> there's uh, a rabbit and a snake. They're making their way through the jungle and happen to bump into each other. And the snake says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, but you see, I'm blind. So I... I don't even know what I am. And the rabbit says, How, what an odd coincidence. I'm blind also. I guess that's why we bumped into each other. I don't even, I don't know what I am either. Why don't you feel me all over and, and tell me, you know, what you think I am? So the snake feels the rabbit all over. He says, well, you're, you've got really fluffy fur and you got huge ears, so you must be a rabbit. So the snake says, now you feel me all over. So the rabbit feels the snake all over and he says, well, you got no ears and you're slimy. You must be a club owner. <laughs> or an alternate version, a jazz critic. <laughs> I don't want to alien anybody with that one. <laughs> so, I mean, there are obviously great exceptions to those generalizations. But this uh, this particular club owner in Reno or Tahoe, wherever it was, was not a rabbit. He was a snake. Well, we don't have any of those types in our audience. We have nothing but rabbits with big oh, ears of and course. great hearing. So why don't you pick another piece from this your album, Off and On, and um, pick one that uh, you think is really representative of, of what you like best about Moser Santos's work. I like Early Morning Love. Yeah, that's uh, one of my favorite pieces on the record. Let's play it. Okay. And we're going to include a portion that has a, a nice solo by you, Mark. Okay. Mark Levine. His most recent CD is Off and On, the music of Mosier Santos. It's been nominated for a Latin Grammy Award for Best Latin Jazz Album. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Check out our website at 7thAvenueProject.com for more information on the program and our guests and to hear audio of past shows. I'm Robert Polly saying so long until next week. <laughs>